morning. I'm glad that the Lord is here. And uh, I already feel like I've been to church. I could go home feeling good that I've been in the presence of the Lord this morning. But since I prepared the message, I'll share it with you anyway. Okay. Um, in the way of announcements, there are several things in the bulletin to take note of. And I wouldn't mention them, but it's amazing how people don't read the bulletin. Um, next Sunday's Father's Day. Don't forget to bring back the baby bottles that you've taken. Whatever's in them or not in them, bring them back because they'd like to have the bottles back so they don't have to spend their money buying more bottles for next year's uh, campaign. If the Lord tarries another year, and appreciate you doing that. Also remind you that next Sunday morning, in between the two services, to honor all the fathers, we'll gather together for a time of breakfast in the gym, and uh, you invite your fathers, your grandfathers, your sons, your daughters, your children. Let's come and have a great day on Father's Day, uh, and we'll gather around the table in between the services. Don't remit the, Don't forget the fundraiser. She's got some old sneakers that she don't need anymore. Bringing them in so Brenton can recycle them, getting ready to go to YWAM. And then you'll take note of the fact that the announcements come out for the summer camps, Grace International Northwest Summer Camps, Kid Camp July the 6th through the 8th, Junior High Camp 12 through 15, and Teen Camp 19 through 22. There are registration forms for both the campers and volunteers on the bulletin board that has the slots on it there in the foyer and grab one of those. There are some um, scholarships available for students uh, who need some help to go to camp and uh, we need to send all the kids we can to camp and we need to send all the counselors and camp workers to the camp that we can. Um, and then Mary Martha meeting tomorrow, 1230, right? It's the 13th. Uh, and the uh, Fireworks will be here in just a couple of weeks. And uh, Marcy's put together a bunch of sign-up sheets in the foyer. Uh, they'll come on the 27th, and we will stock the tent on the 27th. And the morning of the 28th at noon, we begin selling fireworks. So there's a great opportunity for lots of people to be of help. There's sign-up sheet for any hours that you're able to give to us. Uh, doing all kinds of projects, and Marcy's got all those delineated out there. So take a moment this morning. On your way out, sign up your neighbor, your friend, and tell them they're doing it, okay? There was a time several years ago when Vicki and I played pinochle with a couple other couples. It was a game she had to teach me how to play because the only cards I ever saw played it, um, at the house I grew up in was a game called Rook. It was called Christian cards or whatever because all those other face cards and all of that were always associated with witchcraft and those kinds of things. So we didn't have those kind of cards. And so I saw my parents and Sandy Daniels' parents play Rook. Um, I think I may have played it once or twice after I grew up. I haven't seen those cards forever. Um, but learning how to play pinochle was an interesting thing because I discovered after we played with one couple, then played with another couple, then played with another couple, everybody had their own rules. <laughs> their house rules. 
Now, I'm the kind of person, if I'm going to play a game, I want to know what the rules are. If somebody brings out a box game and says, let's play this game, I say, where are the rules? They say, I'll tell you the rules. I don't want you to tell me the rules. I want to know what the rules are because you're going to bend the rules for your benefit. I want to know what the rules are. I want to know what's black and white. I don't like it when things are in the gray. When I purchase something that requires assembly, you know what the first thing I do is? I get out the instructions. Even when it's pictures, because whoever put it together doesn't write English, and so they just drew pictures, and I do my best to figure out the steps. Because I've had a, I won't mention any names, I've had some people call me and say, would you come and help me? I tried to put something together. And the amazing thing is they thought they could figure it out, but they got the steps backwards and they end up with parts that were really crucial. They don't know how to put them in because they didn't follow the rules that are written down there in black and white. I like things black and white. That's my nature. However, there are a lot of things in life that are not black and white. There's a lot of things that are what we would call gray. A lot of places that you have to be very flexible. And if you're married and not learned that yet, if you don't learn that, you won't be married long. You need to learn to be flexible in areas where things are, different opinions are okay. The reason I start there is because in Romans chapter 14, where we have been, uh, there's some issues that the Apostle Paul is dealing with that are subverting the unity of the church in Rome. The issues as to what they are eating and what days they keep as the Holy Sabbath days besides the Saturday, the Holy Sabbath as directed by the Jewish feast. And in chapter 14 in Romans, Paul addresses two groups of people. He, groups, he addresses one group that he calls those who are weak in faith. And by the weak in faith, he's talking about most of them probably being Jewish people who were raised with the Mosaic law, and we're taught you have to keep all of these laws to please God. And some of the Gentiles who have been proselytized and, and listened to some of these, what later became Judaizers, listened to them and, and they bought into that. The other people were the ones that he called were strong in the faith, where they understood that in Christ Jesus we have been given liberty and freedom from much of that Old Testament ceremonial law because he fulfilled that law. And now it's about living out a relationship with Jesus Christ in freedom. And Paul said in another one of the letters, all things are lawful. But he did say not all things are wise or expedient. But, it, but, but in this particular chapter, he's dealing with these issues of what we eat and, and what days that we are holy. And we saw some things last week that uh, he said we need to don't do these things. Don't do these things. Number one, because we love each other, we genuinely accept one another. 
we genuinely accept one another. The meat eaters accept the vegetarians. The vegetarians don't criticize the meat eaters. We, gener- we just accept one another. Because after all, Paul said, both of us were accepted by Jesus. <coughs> Number two, we can disagree over customs and social habits and still both be right with God when it comes to things that are non-essential. What you eat, what you wear, they have no bearing on your salvation. What day you call a special holy day, and it has no bearing on your salvation. My salvation is based on my relationship with Jesus Christ living in me and me walking in obedience to him. So we can disagree over customs and habits. If you want to wear a suit to church, wear a suit. But don't condemn me because I don't wear a suit any longer. Those kinds of things. We talked about the fact that there are some absolutes. There are some things we do not waver on. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father where he's praying for you right now. And one day he's coming back for those who put their faith in him. Those things are absolute. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Two people believe. Amen? There's some absolutes we believe in. But there's a whole lot of other things that that's between you and the Lord. Because we love each other, number three, we submit to the Lordship of Jesus. We submit to the Lordship of Jesus. And in this case, what this means in this context, submitting to the Lordship of Jesus, we refrain from judging one another in regards to these non-essentials. Now, there are scriptures that tell us that we can judge sin, we can judge heresy, false doctrine, but we're not to judge one another regarding what we wear, what we eat, even where we go and what we do, because Jesus is the only one worthy to judge us. You remember Jesus talking to those people about judging each other and says, you, you, you want to judge that person, take the speck out of their eye when you've got a log in your eye? And so we don't judge one another. We need to understand that we will all give an account for ourselves to God. The scripture says in more than one place, we will all give an account for ourselves before God. Almost every time that I substitute drive on the school bus, there will be an elementary student, at least one, at some point during the route, that will want to come and talk to me. Bus driver, bus driver, so-and-so is doing so-and-so, and they love to tattle. Tattling's a whole lot easier than being accountable, isn't it? Paul wants us to understand when we stand before the judgment seat, we're not going to be able to tattle on each other. We're going to have to answer for ourselves. And what I did with the grace that God offered to me, 
considering the context of chapter 14 15, we will give an account for what we did to promote unity in spite of our diversity. We will give an account for what we did to promote unity in spite of our diversity. The church in Rome was very diverse. Gentiles, Jews, Roman citizens, men and women, rich, poor, just like every church in America today. Though we are very diverse, God's goal, Jesus' prayer, is that we'll be one in Him. In a moment, we're finally going to get to the text for the day, beginning in verse 13. But first consider this scenario with me. True story. A pastor tells about a man in his congregation coming to him and, and says, Pastor, I want to bless you with a membership to an exclusive club in that, in that particular hotel downtown, that local hotel. This, this membership will entitle you access to the swimming pool, and it will give you access to the members-only dining room where they have incredible food, and the prices at lunchtime are really great. And pastor, here's the deal. When you need to spend time with somebody, you can take them there for lunch, and, and I've already paid for the membership, and it would just be a great place for you to go. The pastor was impressed by the man's magnanimity, but there was a slight dilemma. Every evening, that same hotel, they uh, hosted what could be called questionable live entertainment, including barely clothed exotic dancers. Now, it was obvious the pastor would not use this dining room at night. But how about the daytime? Was it all right for him to go to lunch at noon in the club that most of the town was familiar with this club? So we're going to vote. Show of hands. How many of you think it would be okay for the pastor to go to lunch in that hotel, in that private club, during the, at noontime? How many don't think he should go at noontime? How many aren't going to vote? Because you think it's a trap. I'll finish the story later. Romans 14, 13 says this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. I told you last week that chapter 14 
goes all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. That there's a, this section that's all about the same kind of subject, maintaining the spirit of unity and, and respecting our diversity in the process. Some preachers like to divide it into three sections. The first 12 chapter, or verses of chapter 14 tell us what we should not do. Then the second part of chapter 14 tells us things we should do. And then the final division is, is the result of what we do and what we do not do. One of the great things about instructions from the Lord, if we pay attention, while he may tell us what we should not do, he always follows it up with what we should do. For example, when Paul said to Timothy, you need to flee youthful lust. I've heard lots of preachers in the old days preach on that sermon for an hour, and that's the only part of the verse they read, flee youthful lust and tell you all the things that we should not do. But the rest of the verse said, but pursue righteousness, peace, and love. If you just think about what you're not going to do, and you think about what you're not going to do, and you think about what you're not going to do, what are you going to do? What you said you're not going to do. So the Lord tells us some things not to do, but then he tells us what we should do. Some positive things. So our mind is going in the right direction, and we will go that direction. So, the first thing he tells us in this passage that we need to do, and it's point number four in, in chapter 14, make up my mind to be cautious with my freedom. He's speaking to those who are strong. I need to make up my mind to be cautious with my freedom. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Continuation of what we talked about last week. The first part of that verse, therefore let us not pass judgment. If you're going to judge someone, judge yourself. According to the word, judge yourself. Letter A, that means I make up my mind, I will not put a stumbling block in the path of someone else. Because I love them, I will not put a stumbling block in the path of someone else. As I was reading several authors regarding this stumbling block, it seems to me that, that Paul is telling us, make sure that if you have freedom to eat meat, or to work what, what had been an, on a, what had been a special Jewish Sabbath day, make sure you don't carelessly leave a stumbling block for somebody who's weaker in the faith to stumble over. I am blessed by the fact that when I go to sleep at night, I go to sleep. Very rarely will I have to get up during the night. Thank you, Jesus. However, there have been those few occasions. And because of that, I try to make sure, I try to remember just in case, to not leave anything in the pathway from my side of the bed, around the end of the bed, around her side of the bed, into the bathroom. Because there's been a time or two when we've come home from a trip and the suitcase gets laid on the floor at the foot of the bed and to be unloaded when we are not so tired or whatever. 
And um, I can remember an occasion in the darkness of the night that I had to get up and I forgot that that suitcase was in the path. Fortunately, I was still agile enough that when I tripped over it, I did not fall all the way down and I did not make too much noise and I didn't wake up Sleeping Beauty um, on the other side of the bed. But don't leave stumbling blocks and sometimes we leave them accidentally because we're not cognizant of who's watching us. So when you got freedom, you say, freedom to do what? What we talked about last week. Some of you have the freedom to drink a beer, drink a glass of wine. Other people have no freedom to drink them at all because of their own personal convictions. And if they drank them, they might be addicted again to something that they've been set free from. So you got to be careful with your freedom. That's what Paul is saying. If you have freedom, you have liberty, use it wisely. Letter B, I will not put a hindrance in the way. Don't leave a stumbling block. Don't leave a hindrance. Or the NIV says obstacle. The King James says occasion to fall. Another uh, definition of the word is a pitfall. As I looked up this word in my concordance, my and the Greek dictionary that tries to help me understand what that Greek word could be translated in several places in the scripture, it, it's like creating a snare or a trap to catch prey. So don't, don't, be, don't be purposely laying something out there to catch somebody. So he goes on in verse 13 to say this, so let's stop criticizing each other. Instead, you should never do anything that would make other Christians have doubts or lose their faith. This is from God's word translation. It's a newer translation. Stop criticizing each other. Instead, you should never do anything that would make other Christians have doubt or lose their faith. The story about the preacher and his dilemma, it is on words. He invited a fellow pastor to lunch there because he had the freedom to go at lunchtime because he wasn't going to. He said, there we were, my guest and I enjoying our lunch at my private club at the local hotel to which I've been given a membership by someone in the church. The man across the table was a preacher from a neighboring town whom I'd been encouraged to befriend. So I invited him for lunch and we were sitting by the window overlooking the beautiful swimming pool. I was telling you about the friend from my church who had bought me a membership to this place. And I told him about the privileges that were mine as a member, including the use of a pool. He looked rather shocked and said, Do you believe in mixed bathing? No, I replied with a smile on face, but I don't have a problem with mixed swimming. I thought it was pretty funny, but he never cracked a smile. What are those large cages over there, he asked. Well, I would never come here during the evening hours, I replied, but I understand that in the evening, go-go dancers get in those cages and are hoisted up where everyone can see them and perform for the pa patrons of the club. Needless to say, the rest of the lunch hour was extremely quiet. Conversation was rather strained. 
I could tell that my Christian brother was offended at being taken to such an establishment for lunch. I didn't see anything wrong with eating lunch there when the go-go cages were empty. And yet, I never went back to that place, never used my membership again. Because although I felt perfect liberty to do it, the Bible teaches that I'm to limit my liberty on the basis of love for my Christian brothers and sisters. I'm to limit my liberty on the basis of love for my Christian brothers and sisters. I'll give you a couple beats to write that in there because I'm ready to go to the next verse. Verse 14 says this, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Underline those words, walking in love. He said, I'm convinced in my heart I can eat whatever I want to eat because of Jesus' redemptive power on the cross. It, it redeemed everything. And I want you to remember, Paul was, what he said, a Pharisee of the Pharisee. The sect of the Jewish culture that was all about keeping the laws, all the outward laws. And he said, in terms of the law, I was faultless. I mean, he thought he did a pretty good job of keeping all 613 of those laws that are defined in the first five books of the Old Testament. And he would have never eaten anything that was not kosher if he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. In fact, they had this ritual that they went through in between different parts of the meal that they ate where they would wash their hands. And as I read about it, it was almost like surgeons getting ready for surgery, the way that they washed their hands and had to let the water drip off of it in just a certain way um, so that they would be clean. And here he is saying, I am persuaded in Christ Jesus that whatever is there to eat, I can eat it. But if it grieves my brother, I'm no longer going to do that because I'm walking in love. Christian liberty does not mean flaunting your freedom and doing as you please. That would be license and not in a good way. That would be license, but not in a good way. It does not mean flaunting your freedom and doing as you please. Kent Hughes likes exercising our Christian liberty to walk in a tightrope. Not in the sense of falling off, but in the sense that when you're walking in a tightrope and you have that balance bar. On one end of the balance bar is the love for others. And on the other end of it is liberty, Christian liberty. They must be kept in balance. They must be kept in balance. No one lives to himself or dies to himself, we read last week. When I think of Christian liberty, in my mind comes the picture of 
of crossing the creek when I was following my dad as a kid when we were hunting elk. And when we come to some of those creeks that were too deep, to, the water would go over your boots. And it was always a pain to take off your boots and socks because you really didn't want to get your boots full of water while you're going to try to hike behind my dad for however many miles we went. Um, but he would find a log, and he would pop up on that log and take right across it just like it was a bridge. Now the logs in the woods, if you've never been on a log in the woods, they're usually wet. He didn't buy me cork boots. In fact, the boots I had were probably slick-soled. And so the first couple times that I tried to follow him across on those logs, I'm terrified. And not being smart enough to just look at the other side, I'm watching the water go under the log. So now my equilibrium's all off. My inclination would be to get down on all fours and shinny across to the other side. But you know what? As time went on, I was able to walk the log and and now it's my grandson behind me that I can see the terror in his eyes when we walk across. He's long-legged enough. He just tries to jump across, and that hasn't worked out very well for him. But uh, my point is this. Some of us have more understanding of our liberty, and there's going to be others coming behind us that's going to take them a while to come to an understanding of their liberty in Christ. So we kind of walk together. We kind of slow down our pace for those behind us and we walk together. I hope that illustrates somewhat of what he's talking about. In honoring one another, loving one another, in all matters, acting in love. In all matters, acting in love. That's our goal. That's our goal. Martin Luther is quoted, and I put it in your notes in that little box. This is Martin Luther. A Christian man is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian man is most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. You have to think about that for a while, but he's stuck. In Christ I have freedom. But because I'm in Christ, I need to serve my brother. I need to be concerned about a sister, about the people around me. Remember what we read in verse 8 of chapter 13, and oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In all matters, acting in love. In matters that are non-essential, yet somewhat controversial, Issues of what we drink, where we go for entertainment or don't go. Issues of what we wear. More important than our freedom is how I choose to use my freedom and how it affects my brother and my sister and the people who are watching my life. You see, it's not our Christian freedom that commends us to the world. It's our love for one another. Jesus didn't say, and the world will know you're my disciples because you have all this freedom to do 
these things that you couldn't do before. It's our love for one another. It's our love for one another. So I sat at the piano before the service and thinking about this message and thinking about all the things that we used to say you cannot do. I remember be riding on a school bus to, on the way to a baseball game with the baseball team. And there was two brothers sitting in the seat in front of me. One of them was a year older senior. And, and uh, I think we were both juniors. His brother played on the JV team. And, and uh, but they're talking about and asking me about what I believed about God and my Christianity. And, and, and I explained to them the gospel as simply and clearly as I possibly could. And then I kind of went in for the cell. And their response to me was, not yet. There's too many things I want to do. Because they associated being a Christian with all the things that we said you can't do because you're a Christian. All the don'ts. I tried to explain to them. It's not about that. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. When you're in love with Jesus Christ and those things, He'll take care of all the rest. Your life doesn't end. You don't. And the tragic thing is, one of them died the next spring at the senior skip when they went to Millersvania Park and on a boat. He got drunk. Something fell overboard. He went after it and never came up with breath in his, ox- in his lungs. But he said, I'm going to wait till I'm older because there's things I want to do. The reason, I don't know why I break that up, but make sure that we're not painting the picture of all the things we don't do, but the life that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, the fullness of Righteousness and peace. Strong Christian limits their freedom out of love for one another. I suppose somebody says, how far do we take that? How far do we take that? Are we going to allow some legalistic, self-pious, self-conscious person govern us? I can remember a dear lady in this congregation years ago got so upset with people who were joking and laughing because she read one scripture that said, don't, you, you don't have any coarse speech. And I don't remember the rest of it. But for her, if we were laughing and whatever, we were not being holy. I guess she hadn't read Proverbs that said, a cheerful heart doeth good like a medicine. I guess she didn't catch Jesus' hyperboles. Jesus, in my opinion, was rather humorous numerous times. I referred to him just a moment ago. And you're going to take the speck out of your brother's eye and you've got a plank in your own eye? A log? I mean, just a little bit. And there's other places when, when he spoke in hyperbole, he just kind of... She was a sweet lady, but we didn't allow her to stop us from laughing and sharing joy.
1928, Donald, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was speaking at Montrose, Pennsylvania, where about 200 young people were present. This is 1928. One day, two women came to him in horror because some of the women were not wearing stockings. He wanted them to rebuke those ladies. Barnhouse reply was this, and I quote, Looking them straight in the eye, I said, The Virgin Mary never wore stockings. They gasped and said, She didn't? I answered, In Mary's times, stockings were unknown. So as far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century when the Renaissance began. Later, a lady of the nobility wore stockings at a court ball, greatly to the scandal of many people. Before long, however, everyone in the upper classes were wearing stockings. These ladies who were holdovers from the Victorian epoch had no more to say. I did not rebuke the girls for not wearing stockings. A year or two afterward, most girls in the United States were going without stockings in summer, and nobody thought anything about it. Nor do I believe this led to the disintegration of moral standards in the United States. Times were changing. The step away from Victorian legalism was all for the better. I remember in the 1950s, it was still an issue. In the CEA, which is Grace International now, the old, older ladies believed that Ladies, nylons should have the seam back on the back so that you knew that they weren't nude. Again, they didn't know that the first ladies who wore nylons with seams on the back were the ladies of the night. It's, a, it's amazing the things that people create as signs of holiness that have nothing to do now, you hardly ever see nylons on a lady. I mean, the culture just goes round and round and round and round. <coughs> Voluntary limit our freedom is not to be, to subject us to the prejudice of Christians who are hung up in legalism. But when Paul's writing to the Romans, he's writing to a church where there's a whole lot of, of young people in the faith, or people who are young in the faith. They're still trying to grasp the fullness of the gospel. So he encourages the stronger to think love first, freedom second. Do nothing to set up the weaker to fail. The second thing Paul tells us to do, number five, live as citizens of the kingdom. Live as citizens of the kingdom. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, is the one who's saying it's not a matter of eating and drinking. Righteousness, peace, and joy. The kingdom of God is not about the clothes we wear. It's not about the food we eat. The kingdom of God is all about things eternal. All about things that will last forever. 
eternal. I think there's a certain amount of deliberateness about the way Paul listed these characteristics. Righteousness, he starts. Righteousness. As we've studied through Romans in the first 11 chapters, we come to understand that that righteousness is imputed righteousness. In other words, God gave to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he died for us, paid the penalty for our sins, and now we are spiritually clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When I stand before God, I stand before him totally forgiven and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he planted something in my heart and in your heart, and that is this longing to be righteous, longing to please him, longing to do the right thing. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. He puts in us a hunger for righteousness. And here's the deal about righteousness. Because Jesus has clothed me with righteousness, I now have a sense of worth. I now have a sense of worth. Because I understand Jesus loved me. And I have value in God's sight. God is proud to call me his son. God is proud to call you his child. And to say, you can call me Abba, Father. It's true of every one of us who cried out, Lord, save me. To as many as received him, he gave the right, the authority, the power to be called the sons of God. Righteousness. I think what the world ought to see in us as righteous children of God is a confidence in who we are. Not an arrogance, but a humble confidence that I am a child of God living by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit who lives in me. And because that is so, peace is evident. Peace is evident. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace. I have peace with God. Paul said, before I was born again, I was God's enemy. But now that I've received Jesus Christ, I'm no longer his enemy. I'm his son, I'm his daughter. And because I have peace with God, I have the peace of God. The peace of God is an, an inner calmness, an inner serenity. Is a, that Because I'm able to say, no matter what goes on, it's well with my soul because God has promised whatever happens in my life, He's going to cause it to work together for my good. I have peace because He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So I don't have to fear what man can do to me, what the scripture says. So man can kill my body, so what? Is that a bad thing to go to heaven? To be with Jesus? My peace, Jesus said, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, my peace. Paul described it as a peace beyond understanding. A peace that you cannot explain. That would be a guard around my mind, around my heart. It passes all understanding. 
because I have an inner peace, and I have a vertical peace with God and an inner peace here, I can be at peace with my brothers and sisters on a horizontal level. Peace is what the angels declared would come when Jesus was born. Remember, they stood in the shepherds, and they said, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The kingdom of God is righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy in the Holy Spirit. It's joy in the Holy Spirit. The three go together, righteousness, peace, and joy. They are the gifts of God. They don't come from you, they come from him. Joy is that delight in life that always finds life worthwhile. Even when life is full of problems, Joy in a Christian does not come from circumstances. Joy in a Christian comes from my relationship. Let me repeat that. My joy is not about my circumstances. My joy is about my relationship. How's it say in the Song of Solomon? I am my beloved's and he is mine and his banner over me is love. David wrote in Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. So if I get what Paul is telling us in verses 16 and 7, it's something along these lines. Sometimes the best thing that we can do for the kingdom of God and for our brothers and sisters is forego that momentary pleasure we may get for something we believe is available to us, but offensive to someone else, and just enjoy the gifts that God gives to us that are going to last forever. His righteousness, His peace, and His joy. If you drive through Longview... No doubt at some point in time you have gone to the Civic Circle Center. You know where the post office is and the city hall and the library and the Monticello Hotel. That huge roundabout. There's a sign when you approach that roundabout. You remember what that sign says? Traffic sign? Yeah, you can talk. It yield. Yield the right-of-way. Yield the right-of-way because the right-of-way is not yours. It belongs to the person who's going around that circle. You yield. In matters of personal preference, in matters of non-essential externals, sometimes the call of love is just to yield to our brothers and sisters for their sake. Paul continues in verse 19 to further drive home the point. Number six, we are to pursue the benefit of others. We are to pursue the benefit of others. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. In exercising our freedom, we must always ask ourselves if what I'm doing is going to build up others, 
especially those that are less experienced in the faith. If I cannot answer, yes, this is going to build somebody up, then we probably should not be exercising that freedom in front of other people. Romans 14, 21 says, It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It's not good, it said. It's not good. That word good, if you look it up in the Greek dictionary to English, one of the words that, they could, that can be translated there would be the word beautiful. It is beautiful to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. It is beautiful because it shows that there is love among the brethren. It's beautiful because arrogance is gone. Arrogance is gone. Sometimes people come into an understanding that they have freedom to do something and somebody questions about that and, and the response is, well, I have my freedom, I can do what I want. True, but you also have a responsibility to those around you. It's beautiful because it's unselfish. It's unselfish. It's beautiful because it means one has a finely tuned sense of spiritual proportion. A finely tuned sense of spiritual proportion. Here's what I mean by that. Recognizing some things are very important some things are kind of, they're not essential. So I give up the things that are not essential for the things that are important, which is other people's walk with Christ. It's especially beautiful because it puts others first. It puts others first. And that goes clear back to chapter 12, where Paul begins talking about this love thing, in honor, prefer one another. In honor, prefer one another. Number seven, do everything with a clear conscience. Do everything with a clear conscience. He gives advice to the strong. Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Paul is saying what you believe about neutral things between you and God and keep it that way. Moreover, you're a happy or a blessed person if in exercising your liberty, you do not condemn yourself by harming another person. You are blessed if you exercise freedom and you're free from doubt. You are blessed if no one is being scandalized or led towards sin by your freedom. You are blessed because you feel God's pleasure. If you are here last Sunday, you, you heard me tell the story uh, about the two preachers in, in England, and one of them being Charles Spurgeon and his propensity to smoke cigars. At the height of his fame in the city of London one day, walking down the street, he saw a sign which read, We sell the cigar that Charles Spurgeon smokes. When Spurgeon saw that sign, 
He came to see what was for him a freedom might cause others to stumble. And he immediately gave up the habit because he did not want to cause somebody else to stumble. And he saw that when it was put up there that, see, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Blessed is the man who can walk in freedom without guilt. The negative of that would be how guilty I would feel if I, using my freedom, I caused someone else to lose their faith. In using my freedom, if I caused someone else to be set back in their spiritual growth. That's what the pastor who went to that exclusive club came to this conclusion. God's not going to condemn me for having lunch there. Good price, good food. But if it causes somebody else to lose their sight of God, I'm not going. Paul's advice to the weak is verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Your strong conviction is that God told you to be a vegetarian, then be a vegetarian. Because you're going to feel guilty if you eat the meat. That's what Paul is saying. Paul has advice for the man who's weak, the man with a scrupulous conscience. It may be that he may disobey his conscience or silence his scruple because everyone else is doing it. He may do it because he doesn't want to be the minority of one. He may do it because he does not want to wish to be different. He may do it because he doesn't want ridicule or unpopularity. Paul's answer, if for any of these reasons a man defies his conscience, he's guilty of sin. If a man in his heart believes a thing to be wrong, and he cannot rid himself of that feeling that is forbidden, for him it's sin. A neutral thing only becomes a right thing when it's done out of faith, out of the real reason, conviction, it's the right thing to do. The only motive for doing anything is that a man believes it to be right. When the thing is done out of social convention or out of fear of unpopularity to please men, Paul is saying it's wrong. Now, my conscience is not an infallible guide because my heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. My conscience, I believe, needs to be guided by the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And as the Holy Spirit speaks to my conscience through the Word of God. And when the Holy Spirit has spoken to your conscience, never sin against your conscience. Apostle Paul has given his four things to do. Determined never to be a stumbling, a source of stumbling. Second, we must live like we're citizens of the kingdom of God, concentrating on the eternals rather than the externals. Third, we must actively pursue what benefits others. And then we must do all that we can with a clear conscience. And the only way I know to come to a place to live with a totally clear conscience is to come to the place where you decide I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ 
And I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and God raised him from the dead and I ask him to be the Lord of my life. Because the only one, the only one who can wash away my guilt is Jesus Christ when I ask for forgiveness. And here's the incredible thing. He said he removed my sin from me as far as the east is from the west. Not the north and the south, because if you take off going north, you're going to come to a place that says you've reached the North Pole. And then when you pass the North Pole, where are you headed now? No matter where you go, you're going south. Go west, young man. How far west will you go before you find the East Pole? God said in this word, I'll remove my sin from you as far as the east from the west. And there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There's a, there's a way to live with the conscience that God has purified it. Every once in a while, Saint will remind you of what those things are because he's the accuser of the brother. Some people might remind you, but when you stand before God, you know my sins have been forgiven. My conscience is clear before God. I hope that you've experienced that grace. Last note, let us seek unity with all that we are. Let us seek unity with all that we are. Last night I was reading that passage of Scripture, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace. A song from 1974 that Dallas Home made popular because he wrote it and sang it came to my mind and so we're going to sing this song I invite you to stand with me and we're going to end on a